in this study for a long, long time. It's been a long, long time since we've actually been in it as well. Uh, we had our uh, spring Bible conference and some things where we just kind of talked about things that we needed to talk about as a church. And then, of course, last Sunday was, was Easter Sunday, and we just kind of peeled off a little area to try to get honest about what the Bible has to say about how we come to God apart from our religiousness. And, and I, I know we're all getting settled right now, and I, I just want to make sure that you get your little everything all set there, because I don't want you to miss what I'm, what I'm saying right here. We, we talked last week in, from John chapter 3 about what God is really wanting out of us. And what he wants is not us to be religious. And you see, man tends to think that. And so what we did last week is we, we came very strongly against all of the religiousness that's out there. And you know what? In the package that it was in from John chapter 3, it was no problem. We can talk about that until we're blue in the face. But I got to tell you, the passage we're going to be dealing with today is a little more specific because now it begins to talk about the religiousness that is so appealing to the world. In fact, that religious system that he talks about in this chapter is very present on this planet right now, April 22nd, 2001. In fact, there are on this planet right now one billion followers. There are six billion people on the planet. One billion of them already profess the specific religious system that Revelation 17 talks about. Now, you, you understand what I'm saying already? It's one thing to just talk about all the religiousness that we want to hold on to that's going to bring us to God. But it's a different story when you start to talk about a specific religious system. Now, what everybody wanted last week is they wanted truth. They wanted honesty when it came to the passage. Now, do we want anything different out of this passage than we got out of the passage last week? Absolutely not. We've got to be honest to the one that said that he was the truth. And I've got to tell you this. This is a truth now that's really, really tough to understand. In fact, there are some people that are in this room today that even after the greatest explanation in the world, and I hope that you get that today, but you could get the greatest explanation in the world. I wasn't presuming that you were about to get it. But you could have the best explanation in the world and you could still struggle to understand this passage. And I say that because the Apostle John, the one that wrote the revelation that we're holding in our hands today, he came through seeing everything that God was showing him about this religious system. And if you look in Revelation chapter 17 and verse 6, he, he, said, he comes to the end and he says, And when I saw her, this religious system, I wondered with great admiration. And the word carries a different connotation than we normally use the word admiration. You know what he's saying? And when I saw this religious system, it absolutely blew my mind. 
I couldn't figure it. And that's why in verse 7, the angel said unto me, Wherefore didst thou marvel? I will tell thee the mystery of the woman and of the beast that carrieth her. And what he begins to do is he takes the whole rest of the chapter to break this thing down for John. Now listen, if John beholding that system with his own eyes as it is being revealed to him says, what is this? Let me just tell you, there's nothing that would make me think that we're just going to plop ourselves into this passage and all of a sudden everybody's just going to understand what this thing is about. In, in fact, this probably as much as any passage that I know is going to carry the, the truth that is found in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Listen to what it says. It says that the natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God, neither can he know them. Because, you see, the natural man has a problem. Now listen, the natural man is somebody that was born into this earth just like all of us. We were all natural men and, and women when we were born into this world. We were a body, a soul that would live forever somewhere, but we had a problem. Our problem was that we were spiritually we were spiritually dead. That's the natural man. Now listen to it again. He says, The natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God, neither can he know them, for they are, what? Spiritually discerned. And you see, if you've got a dead spirit, please understand, you're going to bump into God's truth, and especially a passage like this one because of all of the cultural things that are built into this to say, I don't think it's right that we call names. And what God does for us here is he actually calls the name of the religious system that not only is embracing one billion followers today, but is about to be in the very, very, very near future, is about to become the one world religion that the Antichrist will use as he establishes his reign on this earth during the tribulation period. So, this is very important that today I not be offensive in my demeanor or my attitude. However, if the Word of God is offensive to you, my responsibility is not to win friends and influence people. My job is to give you the truth. And if, if the truth is offensive to you, you know what? That may be the best thing that ever happened to you. Because you may walk out of here today and go try to prove this wrong. And I would love nothing more than that. Because what you'll begin to find as you study this out is God is real clear about what he's talking about here. So let's, let's just go to the Lord one more time. And Lord, I want to ask you today that you'd help me not to be a jerk about the truths that we're going to be talking about. I, I pray that you would help us today to simply be honest with the passage. And I pray you'd help me as I seek to obey your word, as you've instructed me to preach the word, to reprove, rebuke, and exhort with all long-suffering and doctrine. And I pray as the doctrine, the teaching of the Word of God goes forth today, 
I want to ask you very specifically that you would help me to be long-suffering as I communicate these truths. May I communicate these today in the same manner that you would if you were speaking to this group of people about this passage today. And for all of us, we submit ourselves to the authority of your word, realizing that you must reveal your truth to us. And today we ask that the Spirit of God would teach us and reveal this truth to us. And those that are here today that are outside of a relationship with you and are still spiritually dead, still, uh, by biblical definition, a natural man or woman, I pray that this would be the day that their eyes would open to the reality of who you are. May this be the day that they are born again by your Spirit. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, now look with me. Revelation chapter 17. Revelation 17 and verse 1. And John says this. And there came one of the seven angels which had the seven vials and talked with me saying unto me, Come hither, or in other words, come here, John. I want to show you something. Okay, now, for those of you that have not been here over the past several months, chapter 15, and in fact, why don't you just turn back a page or so to chapter 15. Chapter 15 and chapter 16 are all about these seven vials that were just discussed here in chapter 17 and verse 1. John says that one of the seven angels which had the seven vials. And in chapter 15 and 16, God has been spelling out this truth about the seven vials. And in a nutshell, here is the truth that he, he purports here. Now check this out. What he shows us here in Revelation 15 and 16 is that for the last 6,000 years of human history, because God is love, God in his dealings with man has dealt with him in a very loving manner and flowing out of his love God is gracious God is merciful God is tender-hearted and and compassionate and and long-suffering and that's how God has been dealing with man over the last 6,000 years but this passage also lets us know something else you see because God is not only love but God is light or God is holy God naturally not only loves some things, but he also hates some things because the reality of love is if you love, there are some things you necessarily hate. And because God is holy, he hates anything that is unholy. And what it says in Romans chapter 1 and verse 18 is that the wrath of God one of these days is going to be revealed on this planet against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Now, for 6,000 years, he's been dealing with us with love and grace and compassion. But what we find in Revelation chapter 15 and 16 is that time when the wrath of God is going to be revealed on this planet. You know what God's letting you know? He ain't missed a trick in the last 6,000 years, y'all. There's sometimes the unrighteousness and ungodliness of men 
people get by with some of the most horrendous stuff and and even those of us that know the Lord Jesus Christ sometimes feel like we want to look up to heaven and say God why don't you do something about that and what he shows you in Revelation 15 and verse 1 is that in heaven even this morning there are seven vials or seven containers if you will and in those seven vials, what has been taking place over the last 6,000 years is God's wrath has been being stored up in these seven storage containers called vials. And at the end of the tribulation period, what's going to happen is God's going to bring seven angels into the throne room and he's going to say, grab these seven vials and I want you to go. And I want you to pour these out upon the earth. The wrath of God will be revealed on this planet against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. And watch what happens in chapter 16. Just to dial everybody back in and get us flowing into this passage. The first vial is poured out in chapter 16 and verse 2. An incredible excruciating sores break out upon the people on this planet who have rejected Jesus Christ and have taken the mark of the beast. The second vial is poured out in verse 3, and he says that the seas on this planet are going to become as the blood of a dead man. The third vial is poured out in verse 4, and you can see there that the fresh water becomes blood. And so at this point in the tribulation, man is in excruciating pain because of the sores all over his body and can find absolutely no relief whatsoever and now every single drop of water on this planet has turned to dirty nasty putrefying blood the third or the fourth vial is poured out in verses eight and nine look at it and it affects the sun as we cross-reference this we began to see that the sun is going to burn seven times brighter than it's burning today and men will be scorched with heat the fifth vial is poured out in verse 10 and utter darkness engulfs this planet like it did back with the plagues of Egypt a darkness the scripture says which can be felt and he says here that men will gnaw their tongues for pain. And you know what happens at this point in the tribulation period? This earth literally becomes like hell. Because men are in excruciating pain. They are begging for a drop of water to cool their parched tongue. They are burning because of the heat, and yet it is utter darkness. And then the sixth vial is poured out and the water of the Euphrates River is dried up and what it is is God just making a path for the kings of the East and the people in the Middle East right now to get to the Battle of Armageddon because God is going to bring down his judgment that's where the Lord, Lord Jesus Christ is actually going to end up and do some damage on this planet and then the seventh vial is poured out in chapter 16 and verses 17 through 21 and it comes first of all with a great earthquake verse 18 says it's going to be a quake like none other that has ever hit this planet since men have been on it and then if you'll drop down to verse 21 
He also describes that at this point in the tribulation period, what's going to be taking place is God's going to rock the world, literally. Hailstones, a hundred pounds in weight, are going to drop out of the sky upon men and upon the buildings and anything that's left. So, in chapter 17, in verse 1, when it talks about one of the seven angels which had the seven vials... That's what he's talking about. And notice what the angel says in verse 1. Come, come hither, come here. I will show unto to thee the judgment of the great whore. Now, let's just get a, understand where we're moving in all of this. What, what chapter 17 and 18 are about is God's judgment, as he says here in verse 1, God's judgment of Babylon. And what you need to understand as we get into this is that Chapter 17 and 18 don't advance the story of the book of Revelation. That's one of the blanks on your study sheet. Some of you are still looking at me there. Chapter 17 and 18 don't advance the story of the book of Revelation beyond chapter 16. Now, uh, understand this. What these two chapters are, chapter 17 and 18, what, what they really do is they explain two verses. The first verse that is explained in these two chapters is found in chapter 14. Would you look back there? Chapter 14 and verse 8. It says, And there followed another angel, saying, Babylon is fallen, is fallen, that great city, because she made all nations drink of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. And the Babylon that is being referred to here in chapter 14 and verse 8 is a religious system. And chapter 17 is the explanation of this verse. Chapter 17 is really just a description of what it says here in chapter 14 and verse 8. Now the other verse that is explained is in chapter 16 and verse 19. Chapter 16 and verse 19. Look at it. And it says, And the great city was divided into three parts, and the cities of the nations fell, and great Babylon came in remembrance before God to give unto her the cup of the wine of the fierceness of his wrath. And the Babylon that he's talking about here in chapter 16 and verse 19 is not a religious system. It is a political system. And chapter 18 is the actual unfolding or explanation of that. So you got it? Chapter 17 and 18 aren't taking us further down the road. All they're doing is going back, and God is explaining these two verses in these two chapters. Now, in chapter 17, this chapter is also divided into two parts. First of all, he describes for us the Babylonish mother in verses 1 through 6. And secondly, he describes for us the Babylonish monster the beast in verses 7 through 18. So the first part of the chapter is all about the Babylonish mother. The second is about the Babylonish monster. But we're going to be zeroing in today on this Babylonish mother. Okay, now, now, now listen. The first six verses are all about a woman. Would you... Look in verse 1. This is a very illicit woman. She's called at the end of verse 1 
the great whore. In verse 3, look at it. He says, so he carried me away in the, in the spirit into the wilderness, and I saw a woman sit upon a scarlet-colored beast. And look at verse 5. He calls her in this verse the mother of harlots. In verse 6, he says, And I saw the woman drunken with the blood of the saints and with the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. And you've got to come through this if you're a student of the Word of God and asking legitimate questions. You've got to come through all of that and say, Okay, who is this woman? Now, we've talked about this over the last several weeks. I want to just make sure that you understand, and for all of you folks who are, are new to our fellowship over the last several months, and a lot of you folks that are, that are here today, that are back from our Easter service, and I look out and I see a lot of you folks, and man, it just thrills my heart that you're here today. But the thing you need to understand about this woman that we just read about here in these first six verses, this woman is one of the key characters that runs throughout the entire Word of God. It's not like this woman, it's not like we come to the end of the story here and all of a sudden God's going to tell us about this woman. He's been telling us about her all along. And what we've seen, and man, we need to make sure that, that I don't get hung up here, okay, let me just quickly put this into your thinking. First of all, this woman, she is the strange woman of the book of Proverbs. The strange woman of the book of Proverbs. The book of Proverbs talks about a prostitute, a, a, a whore, if you will, and how she works the streets and how she works men to appeal to them, to lure them into her bed. And what you begin to see is that woman that we're talking about here is that strange woman that has been detailed for us in Proverbs chapter 6 and chapter 7, really all the way through the book of Proverbs. And what he's saying is, listen, men, watch out, because there are women that will lure you in like that. But what God's talking about in the prophetical application of Proverbs 6 and 7 and, and those other passages is this woman that we're talking about here that is not just a literal, physical woman. She is a religious system, and she operates the same way that a prostitute does. She lures people in with her seductiveness and through her flattery, and she brings them into her bed to commit a fornicating or an adulterous act with her, and that's why God calls her in Revelation 17 and verse 1, the great whore. So first of all, she is the strange woman from the book of Proverbs. Secondly, she is the religious woman of the Tower of Babel. And we've gone back and we've seen that in the Tower of Babel, what there was, was a man whose name means rebellion. His name was Nimrod. It means rebellion. And what he is seeking to do is establish a kingdom on the earth that is against God. And the way that he's trying to do this is both politically and religiously. He's trying to unify the people religiously in a one-world religion, and he's trying to unify them governmentally in, into a, a government that will be spread throughout the entire world. You know what it is? It's just a foreshadowing 
of what the Antichrist is going to do. And the woman that he's talking about here, in Revelation chapter 17, this great horror, takes us back to the woman of the Tower of Babel religion. Her name is Semiramis. She was married to this Nimrod. Listen, when Nimrod died, shortly thereafter, she becomes pregnant. And so she tells everybody that she has conceived by a sunbeam. And she is giving birth to one whose name is Tammuz. And he is the sun god. His birthday happens to be December 25th. His birthday is celebrated with the giving of gifts, parades, mistletoe, yule logs, all of the stuff that is associated with December 25th. It's all related to Tammuz, the sun god. And this is the Tower of Babel religion. And God comes down to that thing and he scatters that the, the people that were, had entered into this, this religious system. He scatters them over the entire earth. And yet you've got to understand that what had happened is Satan had already implanted in them a virus of false doctrine. And that virus, as it was spread in these people and as it went to all of the parts of the earth, those people took with them the seeds of that false doctrine that would flow out of that every false religious system that has ever been on this planet. They were all in that Tower of Babel religion like a virus. God spread it, those people throughout the entire earth, and by the time you come into uh, the 4th century A.D., Constantine is the one who has become the Roman emperor. And all along, they have been worshiping these pagan gods. Guess where they were from? They were from the Tower of Babel religion. And in Rome, in those pagan gods, there was a holy mother who had conceived a child through a supernatural birth. And what all along, it was paganism. All along, it was what they had gotten from the Tower of Babel religion. Constantine comes along and in a ploy to try to unite the, the dividedness of, of the, the Roman Empire, what he begins to do is he tries to take Christianity to unify the world religiously so that he can unify them politically so he can be the kingpin over the top of the thing in the same way that Nimrod did back at the Tower of Babel, and in the same way that the Antichrist is going to do in just a couple of years. That's what was going on in 325 A.D. on this planet. He goes through this false conversion, had absolutely nothing to do with the Jesus of the Bible, but he calls himself a Christian and he says, listen, Rome is now Christian. And so they had all of these gods that they worshipped all, all over the, the Roman Empire, this holy mother and this child. And he says, you know what? You know, in, in this Christianity thing, you know, there was a holy mother, you know, the Virgin Mary, and she gave birth to, to Jesus. And overnight, the, the gods that they had worshipped in pagan Rome were Christianized, and now people are bowing to idols and yet they're calling them Jesus, and they're calling them Mary. And what comes out of that 
is the Roman Catholic Church is born and is up and running on this planet, the woman that we're talking about right here is that religious system that takes you back to the Tower of Babel, that takes you back to Constantine, it takes you back to the formation of the Roman Catholic Church. But not only is she the strange woman of the book of Proverbs, not only is she the religious woman of the Tower of Babel, she is also that woman, that woman, Jezebel, of the book of Revelation, specifically chapter 2 and verse 20. The Bible refers to this religious system, this woman. He says, you want to know who this woman is? She's that woman. What woman? Jezebel. And what he begins to do is he wants to connect the religious woman that had infiltrated this planet from 325 onward. He wants to make sure that we know specifically who she is. She's that woman, Jezebel. And you know why God says it that way? So we'll go back to Jezebel in the Old Testament to see what we can learn about that religious system so we can understand this woman. And as we go back, and we, we went to, to Judges chapter 16 and, uh, uh, and 1 Kings chapter 18 and, and, and other places, and what we began to see is this religious system that God identifies as Jezebel as a system that when you put all the pieces together without doing any manipulation whatsoever, what this system is is a system that used robed priests called Father, who used idols as aids in worship in their house of gods, an idolatrous house. Now, again, this system used robed priest, called Father, used idols as aids in worship in their house of gods. And the bottom line is, in the Old Testament... Satan used a literal woman called Jezebel to bring Baalism in to pervert the worship of God in Israel. In the church age, Satan used a figurative woman called Jezebel to bring Catholicism in to pervert the true worship of God in Christianity. But the thing that you've got to make sure that you understand is that it is the same system. It's the same exact system system. Baalism of the Old Testament. You go back and see what was going on there. It is Roman Catholicism in the New Testament. So, that's this woman, this Babylonish mother. And I want you to notice, first of all, and this is letter A on your outline, if you'll turn your sheet over. I want you to notice, first of all, Her universal power. Her universal power. And look at verse 1 again. It says, And there, there came one of the seven angels, which had the seven vials, and talked with me, saying unto me, Come hither, I will show unto thee the judgment of the great whore that sitteth upon many waters, with whom the kings of the earth have committed fornication, and the inhabitants of the earth have been made drunk with the wine of her fornication. Now, I want you to think with me about what this passage is actually saying. Would, would you go back to the end of verse 1? He says, 
that he wants to show him the judgment of this woman. He wants to show him the judgment of the great whore. Now, in the last 400 years or so in our English language, this, this word has become a word that you don't use in just everyday language. In fact, those of us that are believers in Christ, we don't use this term even to refer to somebody whose behavior would merit the term. We find a, a, we find a term, we would say she's loose. We, we may even say she's a slut. We, you know, but the word whore just, oh, I mean, it just crawls on you. And I got to tell you, it crawls all over me. I'm using this word today because the Bible does, and so let's, let's hear it in, in that kind of ver- vernacular, because they're, they're, the word is, 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 has changed. Uh, you know, I mean, it, it's, it's a very negative connotation. I mean, you know, it's one of the, oh, that girl, oh, she's a whore, you know. And, and, and in fact, you know what, it's so negative. I can remember the first time that I heard the word, and I asked what, I was in third grade. And I, I can, I mean, I'm there right now, because it was just, you know, uh, what, what's that? You know, oh, you know, and they told me what that was, you know, and I'm like, ugh. And, and you know what is so sad, y'all, is that most of us grew up with a misunderstanding of what a, a whore actually is. You know, I, I, I thought, and I, I, I think I represent most people on this, but I, you see, I thought that the reason that a, that word whore was so was because it was used to refer to a, a, a girl who had an unbridled desire for sex. She just wants to have sex all the time, you know, and yeah, you know, it's okay if men do. Isn't it? I mean, in your lost state, wasn't that the way that it was? I mean, guys, they could do all that all the time. But if it's a girl, man, there's a word that we throw on, on people like that. But listen, do you understand? Girls are not whores because they have an unbridled desire for sex. You know why they're whores? It has nothing to do with sex. They have an unfulfilled desire for love. Specifically, the love of a father. You know what they want? They want the affection and the attention of the one that God brought into their life to give them that attention and that affection and that love. And what happens is girls grow up in homes where fathers are the exact opposite of that and may even abuse them physically, may even abuse them sexually. And oh my goodness gracious, what happens to girls is in order to, it in their mind, be loved and have affection, they'll give away sex in return for that. And you know what? This is not the message. But fathers, could I just appeal to you to love your little girls, to love your little boys, 
to love your big girls, to love your big boys. Because there is, we had a speaker several years ago that termed what the Bible would tell you all throughout the Bible, that there is this incredible thing called father power that you cannot replace. I've got a, a good friend who in the last several weeks as we were talking about this had an incredible way of explaining father power. He said, the way that I see it is that we all blast off from planet dad and we spend the rest of our life orbiting around him. Every one of us. Every one of us. And you see what happens to, to girls that don't get the love that they were intended to get from the man that God placed in their life as their father. They begin to say, I would be willing to give my body in exchange for love. Now men are really weird they will be in a relationship where they have a wife that they love very much and yet they'll give love in order to go crawl in the sack to have sex weird girls will give sex to get love men will give love to get sex and you know when you really begin to understand what causes a a girl to become a whore, to become a prostitute, is that it's not that she just really enjoys sex. There's a passion. There's a lust that's inside of her that has nothing to do with sex. But a lust for something else, something more for affection and love. But, and I'm saying all of that so that you can understand this word Whore. But when it is used in the religious sense, understand something now. Don't feel sorry for this one. Don't feel sorry for this whore. I, I hope that God, just that little deal, will make you the next time you see a prostitute or something on TV. I, I hope it'll break our hearts for their lost condition rather than... Because it has nothing to do with sex. But this religious woman that he's talking about here... It has nothing to do with the fornication and adultery and all of that that God is, is using to refer to those that come unto her. She doesn't have a passion for sex either. She doesn't have a passion for love. You know what she has a passion for? She has a passion, this religious woman, a passion for power. Power. She wants to rule the world. She hungers not just for power. She hungers for universal power. And to get that power, what God's showing us here is she will abandon any and every principle and anything that has to do with scruples or morality. She'll, she'll throw it all away if she can just get the power. The kings of the earth have power. And so what she does, according to verse 2, she'll prostitute herself in any way to get them into her bed so that she can get not their sex, so she can get their power. 
Look at what it says. With whom the kings of the earth have committed fornication. And if you want to know why she's committing fornication with him, look at verse 18. And the woman which thou sawest is that great city which reigneth over the kings of the earth. She lures him into her bed because she wants the power that they represent. Do the people of the earth, when there are masses of people that follow you, is there power in that? Absolutely. And check out the rest of verse 2. And the inhabitants of the earth have been made drunk with the wine of her fornication. You know what she does? Listen, she, she, is, she gets the people of this planet intoxicated with this fornication that they see between her and the kings of the earth. Maybe we might be able to understand what he's talking about here. In the same way that a man gets intoxicated looking at pornography, the fornication that is taking place in that, and there was an intoxication that causes him to come back and to come back and to come back, and he just gets glued into that thing to where it's almost like it's a, it, he's in some kind of hym, hypnotic state, to where he's, he, it's like he's on some kind of drug. It's almost like he's being controlled by it. That's what being drunk is all about. And listen, the people of the earth are enamored held spellbound to the place that they're drunk, just like a man looking at the fornication of pornography as they look at the kings of the earth and the fornication that is going on as they are giving themselves to this woman and this woman is giving themselves to them. It's like they are mentally stupefied. And what God is showing us here is that her power is going to be universal. Look at the end of verse 1. It says that she's the great whore that sitteth upon many waters. Well, there, Ralph, what do you think that means? Well, I don't know, Marge, what do you think that means? Well, I don't know, Harriet, what do you think it means? And you know what? We can sit around here all day, and we can all go, what do you think it means that this whore sits upon many waters? It's not real tough. Because if you go down in the chapter, chapter 15, or, or chapter 17, verse 15, look at what it says. And he saith unto me, The waters which thou sawest where the whore sitteth are peoples and multitudes and nations and tongues. And listen, all through history, the Roman Catholic Church has had one passion. And you know what? It really doesn't have anything to do with religion. It has everything to do with world domination and world power. And through her fornication, what she has actually done, sometimes the way that she works is she will rule the nations with an iron hand. And sometimes she guides the affairs with a velvet glove. And there have been times historically that all this woman, this prostitute has to do is 
snap her little fingers and she can get 12 armies from 12 different nations on the field in battle. And again, I'm not trying to be a jerk today. If you doubt that's true, check your history. Because it is there. It's there in Roman Catholic historians will tell you. She has always sought to rule the world. And you got to watch it now because today, the way that the horror is operating is she is just playing a waiting game. And she's in a very ecumenical mood because you know what she's trying to do? She's trying to let some of the harlots that came out of her in the Reformation period, she wants them to think that she has reformed. Because you see, there were people that were in this horror for centuries and centuries and centuries, and then the reformation, the Reformation came along, and they began to see and go check out your history if you want to understand the fornication in this system and the popes and the fact that most of the popes are the son of a previous pope with a nun as a mama. I'm not just, I'm not just you know, throwing that junk out there, you know, just some little deal that I concocted up. Read Roman Catholic historians and they will tell you some of the most perverted acts that have ever been committed in a sexual realm were committed by popes who sat in the chair of infallibility. And, and, and what, what's, what, what's, what's shaken down here is right now, she's in this waiting game and she's trying to let everyone know that she's reforming because all of these groups that came out of the Reformation as they began to see all of the yuck and all of the, the sinfulness and all of the, the fact that they had laid tradition over the top of the Bible and, and they're saying, no, the Bible doesn't say that and, and, and she would not reform and so they went out to start their own religious systems which is where all the denominationalism comes from in Christianity. That's why there's so many churches and they all say something different came out of that mother of harlots and listen once they get the idea that mama has reformed you know what they're gonna do say well what are we fighting for that's all our forefathers were ever wanting is for her to reform and look she's cleaned up her act they they do tell people to use the Bible now and they, they really don't worship Mary. They really don't think that that bread is Jesus and that that wine is his blood. Don't fool yourself for a minute. There's nothing changed in the doctrine. The official word of the Roman Catholic Church is all of that stuff is still the same. But they'll tell you, oh, no, people say that we believe that, but we don't. Check out their writings and see what they, the, the, the official position of that church actually is. I'm telling you, there's a reformation going on. It's a waiting game to bring people in. But that horror, she's going to be revealed in a big way here in just a few years when the true church is taken out, and then she's going to be free to do her thing. Then, look at letter B. 
That's her universal power. Now let's look at her unique position. Her unique position. Verse 3 says, So he carried me away in the spirit into the wilderness, and I saw a woman sit upon a scarlet-colored beast full of names of blasphemy, having seven heads and ten horns. And the unique position that she has is that she is sitting or riding on the beast, a beast who is described as a scarlet-colored beast full of names of blasphemy, having seven heads and ten horns. And here we go. Well, Marge, who do you think that beast is? Well, I don't know, Harriet, who do you think that it is? And, you know, we, we can do all of those shenanigans, and we can, we can get our minds all messed up and try to bring a human perspective to it. Let's just let God show us. Go back to chapter 12 and verse 3. Because John says here, And there appeared another wonder in heaven, behold, a great red dragon, uh, somewhat like maybe a scarlet-colored beast, having, count them, seven heads and ten horns. Okay, it sounds a whole lot like the beast that we're talking about over there, which sounds a whole lot like Revelation chapter 13 and verse 1. And he says, I stood upon the sand of the sea and saw a beast rise up out of the sea, having, count them, seven heads and ten horns, and upon his horns ten crowns, and upon his heads the name of blasphemy. And you know who this beast is? It is the same beast that we saw in chapter 12 and verse 3, which is clearly delineated for you in verse 9 of chapter 12. And the great dragon was cast out, that old serpent called the devil, and Satan, and who the beast is in chapter 13 is none other than Satan. The same beast, it's just now he's in the person of the Antichrist, and that's exactly who this beast is that's being talked about in chapter 17 and verse 3. And understand this, the fact that the woman is riding the beast and is not the beast signifies that she is a religious system that is distinct from the beast who is the political power. Okay, but now, now check this out. This is not deep. Listen to it, and, and it, this, this will help you, man. Her position, this unique position that we're talking about, of riding on the beast indicates, on one hand, that she is supported by the political power of the beast, while, on the other hand, she is in a dominant Role and at least outwardly controls and directs the beast. So she has a very unique position. She's supported by the beast, the political power, and she is the one that is actually in the control. She's got the seat of authority, if you will. And then let her see. So we move from her universal power to her unique position, and now let her see her unlimited prosperity her unlimited prosperity. You see, the, the way that, and you guys know this, the way that whores operate, the way that prostitutes operate, is they dress to attract the attention and, and in a seductive type of manner to allure people to come into her bed. This whore is no different. 
John sees her in verse 4, and the woman was arrayed in, in purple and scarlet color. You can begin to go through the scripture and just Judges chapter 8, verse 26, Ezekiel chapter 23, verse 6, Daniel chapter 5, verse 7, verse 16, verse 29. All that's going to show you is that the, 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 the terms purple and scarlet have to do with wealth. It has to do with prosperity. It has to do with royalty. And she is using this to attract people into her whorish bed. It, it is rather interesting. If you check out the Vatican, if you have a color TV, that the colors that you're going to see that all of the big wigs in that system wear. You, you see, you got the College of Cardinals. What color do they wear? Scarlet. And if you check out the other colors that are dominant in that room, it's going to be purple. So she's dressed in, in purple and scarlet. It has to do with, with her prosperity and her, her wealth. And evidently, she's done fairly well for herself in this trade that she has taken on because it says that she is adorned with gold and precious stones and pearls. Evidently, she's been pretty successful in becoming extremely wealthy in this trade. And it's interesting. If you begin to look at what is, is written, and again, you can check this out and anywhere that you want to go check it out. The wealth that the Roman Catholic Church has. You see, the thing that dazzles the kings of the earth is her wealth. At, at present, she boasts right now approximately $70 billion in assets. $70 billion. The, the Vatican is an international financial power. It has extensive holdings in hotels, in transportation companies, in industry. A, a book came out uh, in the last decade or so. It's called Rich Church, Poor Church, written by Malachi Martin. He estimates, and understand that the guy that's writing this is a Jesuit. He estimates that their wealth is not $70 billion, but $300 billion. So she has unlimited prosperity. And look at letter D at her unholy passions. Her unholy passions. He says at the end of verse 4, having a golden cup in her hand. And, and you see many want to think that the golden chalice, the golden cup of the Roman Catholic system is the holy grail. And God tells you there is absolutely nothing holy about this grail, this cup that she holds in her hand. Verse 4 says the cup is full of abominations and filthiness of her fornication. The filthiness of her fornication is in the cup. 
I don't want to have to explain that. Abominations. If you look at that in the Old Testament, it refers to the worship of idols. And guys, I think you understand, as does the whole world. The Roman Catholic Church is shrouded in idolatry. And it, God says it is an abomination. I mean, it takes us back to the Ten Commandments, y'all. Don't make, how many? Any graven image. Well, what if it's of Jesus and Mary? Any. Any. God says it's, it's an abomination. And, and, and look further. Verse 5. And upon her forehead was a name written. And what's interesting is if you check the, the, the history, Roman whores, Roman prostitutes were known for wearing a headband, headband on their head. And on the headband was written their names. You understand what I'm talking about? That would describe her trade. It's kind of like when I was in Bangkok. I'm going through this marketplace at night, and guys, guys walk out from buildings that are lined up along the street, literally, with a menu for you to order up your prostitute. Which one do you want? This one is known for this, and this one's known for this, and... And that's, that's, that's what was going on in this whole Rome thing. The name was on the forehead, and this prostitute, this whore, is no different. Look, look first, her, her name is Mystery. Mystery. You know what? That whole system is all shrouded again in the, the mysteries. Her power is, is sinister. It's... It's subtle, it's secretive, it's suggestive, it's seductive. It's hidden, it's dark, it's, it's obscure, it's, it's mysterious. And because it's mysterious, it has a strange allurement on people who want to be religious. Because the more mystical it is, the more holy it seems. And you see, there's just, man, isn't that the coolest thing in the world? When in the midst of the Mass, the priest transubstantiates that bread into the literal body of Christ. And that hooch literally becomes the blood of Christ. And when it happens, ding, 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 the bell rings. Religious man. I didn't understand anything about it, but I know there's something magical here. And he says that she's Babylon the Great. And again, we talked about that. She's the woman from the Tower of Babel, and so that God makes sure that he lets you know who she, he, he's talking about here. He takes you back to Babylon to understand who she is. The mother of harlots and, and what you see the, seductive, the seductiveness of this whole thing is is she's really not too concerned about doctrine 
And so she will change her colors because what she's ultimately wanting to do is become one system, ultimately, that is comprised of all kinds of people on this planet. Hindus, Buddhist, Confucianist, Taoist, I mean, just go um, Mohammedans, even people who profess to know Jesus Christ in this life and never really came into a genuine relationship with him, including, lest you think that we are stuck on ourselves, including Baptist and Methodist and Presbyterians and Pentecostals and Catholics. They'll all be in this mother of harlots, this abominous one world religion. And then lastly, moving from her unholy passions, now look at her untold persecutions. Her untold persecutions. So we move from her universal power, her unique position, her unlimited prosperity, her unholy passions to her untold persecutions. John says, And I saw the woman drunken with the blood of the saints and with the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. And when I saw her, I wondered with great admiration. Now, now you got to understand because this is, this is so clear who this is actually talking about. And it will even be clearer as we move down further into, into this thing because it's going to identify. Look, look at verse 9. Here is the mind which hath wisdom. The seven heads or seven mountains on which the woman sitteth. It's talking about Vatican City, the city of seven mountains, the city of seven hills that he's talking about here. And you see, the way that they would interpret this passage is you can't get away from the fact that he's describing Rome in this passage. And they would admit that. But what they say this is, is this is pagan Rome. And you see, in the first three centuries, until Constantine did that whole thing that he did that we explained earlier from the Tower of Babel deal, in the first three centuries, pagan Rome unmercifully persecuted and tortured and killed Christians. And so the way that they deal with this is they say, you see, what this is actually talking about, this is not during the tribulation period, that's just, you know, what, what those dispensationalists have to say. What this is really talking about here, this is talking about pagan Rome, and they're the ones who were drunk on the, the, the blood of the saints and the martyrs of Jesus What would that freak John out about? Because he was living in 95 A.D. at a time where he had already seen pagan Rome kill the other ten disciples that were faithful to the Word of God. He had watched them butcher and murder hundreds of thousands of them. In fact, he is exiled on the Isle of Patmos at this very time when he's receiving this revelation because of pagan Rome because of the testimony of Christ that he had. and That, that was revealed to us in chapter 1. You know what's blowing him away? You know why he says, I, I wondered with great admiration. And again, it's not like, oh, oh 
isn't she wonderful? No, again, the word admiration, when it was used here in 1611, when we had our translation, the, the word carried with it the idea of marvel, astonishment. Uh, and again, he's saying, I, I looked at her and I was blown away. You know why he was blown away? Because this is, this is Rome, and he recognizes that. And she believes in the virgin birth. Pagan Rome didn't believe that. That's why they killed people. But this system, as he looks at this woman, she believes in the virgin birth. She believes in the, the vicarious death of Christ on the cross where he shed his blood for sins. She believes that. She believes he was buried and he stayed there three days and he bodily rose from the dead. She believes all of that. And yet, she is the one who is drunk. Now she makes the people of the world drunk, and she is drunk. She is stupefied mentally in the blood of people like me and you that believe that Jesus Christ is received not through a wafer and hooch, but because by faith you call upon the name of Jesus Christ apart from any church, including this one. You just call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ by faith, and she hates anybody that will, because of that universal power that she wants. She will kill. She will do whatever is necessary to make sure that you don't hold to your faith in Christ and Him alone apart from her. Yeah. Jesus died and was buried and rose again. And you must receive him as your Savior and keep the seven sacraments because, you see, the church is the one that dispenses the grace of salvation to you. So if you want salvation, you've got to get it through me. And anybody historically that has ever stood against that false teaching, she shed their blood unmercifully and killed them. Will Durant, the historian, says that the atrocities carried out by pagan Rome were a Sunday school picnic compared to the atrocities carried out by papal Rome on people who believe nothing other and the gospel that was preached in this room last Sunday and is being preached in this room this Sunday. And just unbelievable what has taken place down through the centuries. Listen, on August 24th, 1572, 70,000 Huguenots were massacred. You know why? Because they believed the same thing that this group of people in this room believes today about Jesus Christ and about that book and how a person comes to him by faith and faith alone. 70,000 of them, listen, in one day. Another 200,000 died unbelievably horrible deaths coming out of a 25-year period just after that. From 1573 to 1598, 200 thousand people butchered, martyred for believing. Nothing different. 
than what the group of people in this room believes today. The Inquisition killed in a 30-year period almost one million people. Nine hundred thousand people. Check this out. In, in, in Bohemia, right at the beginning of the 17th century, listen, in Bohemia there were four million people that populated that, that place. Four million. In a several year period of time, there was 800,000 of them left. All Roman Catholic. They killed, listen, 3,200,000 of them in just a short little period of time. Four million? And 800,000. All Roman Catholic. It's a matter of historical record. It has nothing to do with, well, you know, we push denominationalism around here. We're Baptist. Uh-uh. We're Bible believers. We're Baptist because we fall in a line of a group of people like the Huguenots and Bohemians, the Waldenses, and we could go on and on with the names that they've been called through the centuries. But what they were is people not trying to push a denominational tag. It was people that were trying to say, listen, God gave us a book. And he revealed his truth to us in the book. And we've got to stick with what the book says and what you're teaching there has everything to do with what man says and it has nothing to do with what this book says because what you're teaching goes contrary to what the book says. And when you make that statement, and, and, and for the vast majority of the people in this room, how, how many times have we talked about the atrocities where some of the people in this room don't even understand? I mean, we're not talking about something civil like the gas chamber or lethal injection or no we're not even talking about something as humane as chopping their head off in a guillotine we're, we're talking about taking women you, you can read the accounts of it man and cramming them in a box about this side where they literally with their feet crammed them into the box and nailed it shut and buried them alive We're talking about priests and nuns coming into dungeons, strapping people onto equipment where they would literally be stretched to every joint and their body would be torn out of place and sometimes the limbs literally torn off of their body to where people would be strapped and they would take hooks and just all over their body until they would repent of being a true follower of Jesus Christ. And, and we could go on and on and on with the stories to where we would probably all get to the place if we just really told it the way that it is, where we might not want to eat lunch today. People impaled on stakes, women having flaming, hot, Pokers crammed into every opening in their body. I mean, it's all there, a matter of historical record. She's drunk with the blood of the saints and the martyrs of Jesus because she wants power. And 
if you believe something contrary to what she believes, you're messing up her power. Because you see, once you come into a true relationship with Jesus Christ, man, you're born again. And you begin to see the system for what it is. You begin to understand what's going on. And historically, y'all, she has been drunk on the blood of the saints and the martyrs of Jesus. And right now, she's got a real mellow stance. And what God's telling you is in just a few years, she's coming back in full force with all of the venom that she has been storing up for the last 1960-something years. She makes the people drunk with that fornicating power. And she gets drunk off killing anyone that she can't get into her bed. Man. Don't pack up on me if you would, please. I I told you at the beginning, it's a tough one, man. Some tough stuff. If I were orchestrating the events coming off of the week we had last week and so many of you folks who were here for the very first time last Sunday to hear a very nice message about how you can be born again. Somehow I want you to see that today is really a very nice message because God is trying to show you a system that all of your life has been trying to lure you and had you not received Jesus Christ well could during the tribulation period lure you into her bed and everything that we talked about this morning with those seven vials being poured out those would be poured out upon you I'm not saying anything that I've said today because I hate Catholic people. Oh my goodness, man, I I wish I could sit down with you and tell you just what a fallacy that is. I love Catholic people. Absolutely. With all of my heart and say that unashamedly and I'll spend as much time as I could possibly spend with any priest, with the Pope, with any person that is in that system, I have no venom, no animosity, no whatever about any Roman Catholic person. But I will tell you, I absolutely despise that system of religion. Because it lures people into their bed. And it has Christianity all over the top of it. So people come into this thing very well-meaning, thinking they're Christian. When they are in a harlot system of religion that really goes back to the Tower of Babel and just took the Tower of Babel religion and started throwing the name of Jesus all over the top. And right now, it's pouring like crazy, so let's just stay for another hour and a half. (laughs) Please, oh my goodness, some of you that are here today, 
are Roman Catholic people. The purpose of this today is not to attack you. It's not to promote our church as opposed to that church. The whole motive today is we've been preaching through the book of Revelation. You can see at the top of your study sheet for the last 141 weeks of Sundays. And this is the the passage that we're in. And I don't make any apology for that. I just want you to know that this is not an out-and-out attack on you. But if you are in that system, oh my goodness, would you please, would you please understand that you're trapped in a system that has been Christianized but is not Christian in any way, shape, or form. And you can't be saved by joining our church either. You can't be saved by doing our version of seven sacraments and jumping through our hoops either. It has nothing to do with church. It has everything to do with you coming to Christ and saying, I know I'm a sinner. I know there's no way for me to get to you. So I get it. You came to the earth so that I I could have this relationship. You were coming to me and you took my sin so that I could have the relationship with you that I was intended to have from the beginning. So I confess, I'm a sinner. And I know that I can join any church, get baptized, Christianized, catechized, whatever. I know that. I'm asking you, to save me. You alone. No church. Not my good works. Not, not my rosary. Not my beads. Not my, not my Baptist membership. But you. Would you save me? Would you forgive me? Would you come in and sit on the throne of my life and listen? That's as simple as it is. But you see... What he's looking for is for people to turn from whatever it is that they're trusting. Your Baptist membership or your Catholic membership, for that matter, or whatever it is. He's he's just waiting for you to turn to him and to him alone. Oh, God, would you please help people that are in this room, in that system. Would you please help them today? To allow the light of the glorious gospel of Christ to shine unto them. Again, I pray that you would remove the human element of this and the people would see clearly your truth. And with our heads bowed, those of you that are here today and, and you would like to receive the Lord Jesus Christ regardless of what your background is, if the Lord is talking to you about coming to Him and Him alone, we would love the opportunity of talking with you to help you. Our pastors are going to be up at the front of this room as we're dismissed here in just a second. And they are positioning themselves here at the front of this room for the sole purpose of talking to you. 
We'll get someone, if you're a lady, we'll get a lady to talk to you and show you from the Word of God today how you can have a relationship with, with, with the Lord Jesus Christ. If you're a man, we'll get a man to, to get with you. But we would love, while God is busy dealing with you and speaking to you, we would love the opportunity today of being able to share from the Word of God how you can come into a relationship with Him. And, oh, God, again, would you please work in the hearts of folks and would you please work in the hearts of all of our people to love people trapped in the system that we talked about today. Oh, would you break our hearts for people in this system that we live near or we're related to or we work with. May we not go out of here venomous and and putting this in, in, in their, their face, but may we pray that you will give to them the spirit of wisdom and, and revelation and knowledge of you and be able to see the, the truth of who you are and how we come to you apart from any church or anything that we do. So would you help us to love the lost, realizing that Fully one-sixth of the world is trapped in the system we talked about today. And may it break our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen.